Well, I don't think anyone can deny that we have a problem here. We're in an ethical mess. I started working in the prisons 35 years ago. There were 229,000 people in prison. Today, there's 2.3 million. The financial crisis has rocked the world and shaken markets worldwide. Lenders were encouraged by the government to lend to less creditworthy buyers. Almost everyone in a position of financial authority embraced it. At the same time they sold them short and hammered them like mad, raked in money. At every level they were deceiving the people they were dealing with. Well, Wall Street not only saw no evil, but saw a great deal of virtue, which could be quantified in billions of dollars. That was the virtue of it. Why are we surprised when there's a lack of ethics in the lenders, Wall Street, government? It's an inescapable consequence of neglecting moral training. One of the things we need to do is resensitize ourselves to evil and resensitize ourselves to good. That was the time when I should have stopped and said, wait a minute, Mr. President, think about the consequences of this. But I did not. Self-righteousness is believing you're so good that you couldn't be compromised. And that's the kind of pride that's fatal. Business schools need to start thinking about right and wrong and ethics. But that's a very difficult challenge if the professors don't know how to teach it or think that way. Students simply were not aware of questions of moral philosophy. They say, well, ethics is following your own integrity or following your conscience. But what if you have a poorly formed conscience? What if you're a jerk? in Harvard Business School, there's no fundamental agreement on the way the world works. And so you're reduced to discussing practical behavior. So truth has got to be knowable for there to be ethics. It would be hard to live a life as a consistent moral relativist, not making any kinds of moral claims. If you're a purely accepted moral relativist position, then you have no ground on which to stand to say why another person is wrong. The sure consequence of the attempt to liberate oneself from demanding moral norms and obligations is slavery. It's resulting in more harm to the society in general than anything else in my lifetime. It is unutterably destructive. How's that working for you? Eugenics is very much alive and well. It's back. And we now face the question, are we going to buy it or not buy it? A proper understanding of who the human person is. If we lose that, and we are losing that, it becomes very, very dangerous. Quadriplegics like me have never fared well in societies that view life as dispensable. People are created equal and endowed by their created with certain number of rights. This is the fundamental ethic on which the Western civilization was built. You don't give human rights to people and you can't take them away. Uh, human rights are God-given. Central power, like all power, has to be checked. It has to be limited. Government must be under the moral law. And if the government violates those rights, it should be changed. My uncle did write and did say, if a law is unjust, it is our moral responsibility to resist the unjust law. And that that is the basis of the civil rights movement. In the case of Tycho and innumerable other recent cases, it all went terribly wrong. Things uh, were pretty badly broken inside the company. When you lose 
a sense of trust, market economies fail. The dream is, if I can just achieve this much more, I'll fill that emptiness. The thing with money is it doesn't make you happy. Doing the right things, that's what makes you happy. We made a decision that we thought was going to cost us money. I don't think it's cost us a dime by being a good corporate responsible citizen. But the market also both requires and nurtures the virtue of service, hard work, and discipline, and diligence. It's got to begin in homes, in churches, in schools. At every level, we have to be working together to rebuild a consensus around a sound and coherent ethic. The family, religion, you know, culture, this is what has to be transformed. Our recognition of duty to do what's right, even in the face of powerful temptations and incentives to do what's wrong. That is the great goal of life. Am I doing what's right? for other people who, like me, are made in the image and likeness of God. Good morning. My name is Eric Metaxas. Uh, I'm going to be the MC today. Uh, I'm here for two reasons. First of all, um, Chuck Colson is my hero, and uh, anytime he's doing something, I'm very interested in what he's doing. Uh, it doesn't matter what it is, I know uh, there's a 100% chance that it's going to be something that's important. And I think that's probably why some of you uh, are here this morning. Uh, so I want to welcome you. Uh, we've got a lot of ground uh, to cover uh, this morning. It's very exciting. Uh, the second reason I'm here is because I have written a biography on Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I wanted to plug that biography. <laughs> Uh, that, my goodness, um, people applauding a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer at 9 a.m. I must be in Dallas. Uh, it doesn't happen in New York City where I'm from. Uh, I live there with my wife and daughter. But in all seriousness, when I wrote this book about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I didn't have any clue um, that it would apply so powerfully uh, to what we're going through in our culture today. I mean that sincerely. I was just writing a biography. Um, but I have to tell you, what we're doing this morning uh, is a perfect corollary uh, to what the book talks about. And what I mean is that uh, that book talks about a man, Bonhoeffer, trying to call the church to be the church at a time when, if the church wasn't the church, society would crumble. Well, we know, as many prophets, uh, he cried out, he said what he had to say, and people did not heed his cry, and we know what happened. I believe that we get a second chance, in a way, that he is calling us, uh, the Lord is calling us, to be the church at a time now when we get to do it right. And I believe that what we're doing this morning, frankly, uh, is exactly a part of this process of calling the church to be the church. It's not a small thing, it's a big thing, it's a huge thing, it's everything. Uh, and so, for you to be here this morning, I simply want to say, this is actually very important. It's not just entertaining. Uh, I believe God is saying something to us. He's calling the church to be the church, and that's what this is about. So let me say to you, uh, first of all, that this is uh, this whole uh, morning uh, is brought to you by the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview, uh, also by KCBI, also by the Letourneau University uh, Center for Faith and Work, uh, and the Liberty Institute. What you're going to have this morning is an in-depth preview 
uh, of this study, an important study, a six-part study put together by the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, most of you know what I'm talking about. It's doing the right thing. That's the title of it. You've just gotten a preview. It's a six-part exploration of ethics. Remember ethics? <laughs> Uh, this is a DVD-based study. It is a curriculum. It was filmed in Princeton, New Jersey, before a live studio audience. Obviously features Chuck Colson and other panelists uh, like Robbie George, uh, Britt Hume, uh, a number of others. Um, discussing ideas of ethics, virtue, truth, what it means to be human. Uh, and how to ethically and virtuously navigate through life in the midst of moral relativity and ethical collapse. That's the call of the church, to do that, to know how to do that. Uh, okay, today's program is going to feature clips uh, from each of the six sessions of this DVD. This is a tremendous DVD. You're just going to get a sampling um, of it uh, this morning. Uh, after each clip, we're going to have a presentation by each of the speakers uh, this morning. The first one, of course, is Chuck Colson. Uh, at the end uh, of the clips and at the end of the speakers, we're going to have a panel discussion um, and a time for audience Q&A, so you may want to be thinking about the questions um, you want to ask throughout the morning. Um, obviously, we hope that uh, this morning's conference stimulates uh, your thinking on all of these issues, but uh, as I said a little earlier, this is not just about coming to hear some interesting things and going back to our lives. Uh, I want to say very pointedly that this is a call uh, to get involved in what I believe God is calling the church to do, to be the church. Um, there's a reason that uh, we started this in Dallas and not in Manhattan. I think we had done this in Manhattan. Uh, actually, I should say, I run a speaker series in Manhattan called Socrates in the City, and we did have a preview of this uh, in December. Uh, but the curriculum uh, is only ready now. It's going to ship in a couple of weeks, and we're really ready to launch this. But uh, this is no joke. To come to a place like Dallas, where there are people of faith who understand that this is a serious call, and that this movement can start here, because you're going to take this curriculum back to your churches, back to your home groups. Uh, I really believe this is a movement of the church, uh, that Jesus is calling his church to step up to the plate and to be the church at a moment when I don't need to tell you um, we're in trouble in our culture. So this is, a, this is a serious thing this morning. So the whole idea is uh, uh, to to tempt you uh, into actually buying this curriculum kit and taking this back into your lives and beginning the process. I think of this this morning uh, in Dallas here. This is ground zero. Uh, we're going we're gonna to start it here, and you're going to take it back. And I, I think that the church is ready for something like this. So uh, I hope that is the case, that uh, you're going to leave here committed to furthering this process. It doesn't end uh, this morning. We're going to this morning pack a lot of content into a small period of time, so to keep things moving, I'm going to introduce all of the presenters and panelists uh, right now, uh, rather than uh, before uh, each of them. So again, we're going to have uh, a video, uh, and then a speaker, and a video, and a speaker. We'll have a break uh, as well, of course. But um, So let me just tell you who is going to be with us this morning. They're going to come out in order. First of all... My friend Chuck Colson, uh, 
You may know him as the founder of Prison Fellowship and Breakpoint, the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. By the way, that's just a coincidence that he's the founder of the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. We had no idea when we chose the name. That, that's how you know it's God. That's amazing. Is that not amazing? Incredible. Um, so you know, you know. Uh, I think you know about Chuck, and I have to tell you, um, what an honor to be part of uh, what he's doing here. This is just uh, a privilege for me to be here. I used to work for Chuck. I was uh, one of the editors on Breakpoint. Uh, <clears throat> it didn't pay well, but it was hard work. Uh, <laughs> But what a privilege to work for my hero, uh, Chuck Colson. Uh, after Chuck, uh, we're going to hear from David Noggle. He's the chair and professor of philosophy at Dallas Baptist University, which I believe is located in Dallas. <laughs> it's another coincidence. It's amazing. Uh, then we're going to hear from John Stone Street, executive director of Summit Ministries, national director for strategic partnerships for the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. Uh, and by the way, there's much more information on each of these speakers uh, in your programs. These are amazing people. Let me just tell you, I've been meeting some of these folks backstage. It's kind of a big deal that, that, that they've all assembled here and that we're going to be hearing from them this morning. So I want you to know uh, that this is a, it's kind of a, a big deal to have them all assembled uh, here. Of course, some of them already live in Dallas because, you know, all the important Christians live in Dallas eventually. I know. I've heard about that. Uh, uh, but, uh, but, it, but it is a big deal. So I want to encourage you to look deeper because I don't have the time to give you the full uh, brief on each of these, uh, these speakers. But these are some amazing uh, people you're going to hear from. Uh, after John Stone Street, we're going to hear from Donovan Campbell, the author of Joker One, uh, formerly director of sales at PepsiCo um, and a hero. I think you want to read about him. We'll then hear from David Stevens, uh, CEO of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. Um, and if you have any medical issues, don't, don't approach him at the break. That's just rude. Don't, don't, don't say, I've got a, I've got a rash. Could you, would you look at this? Just because I'm, that's just not, we don't do that. So don't do that. Um, all right. Then we're going to hear from Kelly Shackelford, president and CEO of the Liberty Institute. Uh, then from Bill Peel, director of the Letourneau University Center for Faith and Work. And then finally, we'll hear from Todd Wagner, senior pastor of Watermark Community Church which I believe is right down the street. Am I getting that right? It's near, it's near here someplace. Um, uh, in any case, uh, those are the speakers. Those are the speakers. And after that, as I say, we're going to have a panel discussion. I'm really excited uh, about that where you get to ask uh, questions, and I'll, I will moderate that. So right now, let's get kicked off. We're going to hear, we're going to see our, we're going to begin our exploration of ethics and of this six-part series, Do the Right Thing, by watching a clip of session one. The title is, How Did We Get Into This Mess?, and then we're going to hear from my friend Chuck Colson. So again, I want to welcome you and say God bless you and let the Lord speak to you this morning uh, through these speakers. Amen. can deny that we have a problem here. We're in an ethical mess. The financial crisis has rocked the world and shaken markets worldwide. It has caused an upheaval in millions of lives. What went wrong and why did it go wrong?
At every level, they were deceiving the people they were dealing with. At every level. Almost everyone in a position of financial authority embraced it. Our Federal Reserve saw no evil. The ratings agencies, as mentioned, uh, stamped their highest imprimatur on these mortgages. They saw no evil. Wall Street, uh, which was feasting on these transactions, uh, not only saw no evil, but saw a great deal of virtue, <laughs> which could be quantified in billions of dollars. That was the virtue of it. At the heart of this, is an unethical series of acts. At the heart of it was an incredibly unethical act of Wall Street in packaging securities they knew to be fragile and wor often worthless or large, largely worthless. They shouldn't have sold them in the first place. If they were selling them, they should not at the same time have been selling them short. You know, in the aftermath of the bust, in the dark days 2008 and early 2009 you'd hear our public officials say over and over let's not have any recriminations let's not point fingers of blame without accountability we are all treading water in this murky lukewarm milky sea of collectivism and nothing good comes of it let us have individual responsibility why is there this seemingly widespread moral collapse in America? Many Americans, at some level, at least claim to believe in what's called moral relativism, the denial that there is any such thing as moral truth or an objective moral truth, that all we have is opinion. There are no right and wrong answers to moral questions, just opinions or feelings. Twenty years ago, a friend of mine gave five million dollars to Harvard Business School to set up a chair on ethics. I called him and said, you're wasting your money because an institution today committed to philosophical relativism of the kind Dr. George just described can't possibly teach ethics. Ethics are based on absolute standards of right and wrong. I'm a graduate of Harvard Business School. Uh, I, was, I graduated with actually with high distinction, so I was named a Baker Scholar. So I was in the top 5% of the class. Unfortunately, the, the school does not subscribe to the idea of ultimate morality, of ultimate good, which is good in and of itself, outside of any context, and which is translatable across cultures, times, it's applicable everywhere. They do not subscribe to that concept. Problem is, there's no mandate. There's no fundamental agreement on the way the world works. And so you're reduced to discussing practical behavior in certain situations. To be sure, I think most people don't wake up at the start of the day to go into their office to say, today I'm going to be unethical. Today I'm going to commit the world's biggest fraud. It's a series of steps that takes place over time, at which point someone finally crosses a line and goes too far. So what's happened is, the way we've been taught since we were little, is we're taught that the opposite of a fact is an opinion. And facts are empirical statements, and everything that's good, true, beautiful, right, wrong, kind, compassionate, are just matters of opinion. It's embedded in the way we think. We've got to work on this problem in every dimension. It can't just begin in business school. It's got to begin in homes, in churches, in schools. At every level, we have to be working together to rebuild a consensus around a sound and coherent ethic. How did we get here? How did we get into this situation of incoherence? What's happened is that over time, the Christian moral foundations that allow you to make the kinds of ethical and moral judgments that you're talking about here have deteriorated. Why are we surprised 
when there's a lack of ethics in government, Wall Street, the lenders, people, the prisons. It's an inescapable consequence of neglecting moral training. We're in an ethical mess because of it. Good morning. Good morning. Well, it's, it's really wonderful. It's wonderful to see all of you here on a Saturday morning for what is a very, very serious topic, very serious topic for this country. I'm thrilled to be in this church because Todd Wagner is my idea of what a pastor ought to be. It's just tremendous. He's got a worldview. He understands it. He understands how it has to be articulated. So thank you, Todd, for having us in your church. And uh, Eric Metaxas, what a great thrill to see him. You know, fame does amazing things to people. <laughs> people used to say to me, have you ever heard of a fellow by the name of Eric Metaxas? I said, yeah, he started working for me years ago. And now people say to me, you ever heard of Eric Metaxas? Yeah, he used to work for me. I mean, it's amazing. I've watched Eric grow. As a matter of fact, Eric was at a lecture very much like this one today at New Haven at Yale University at the School of Law. I was telling him why they destroyed the rule of law because of relativism. And the whole crowd, the place was absolutely jam-packed. The whole crowd of students, just like I'd had experienced earlier at Harvard and other places, they, would, they didn't know how to respond because they've never heard this kind of stuff. And down in the front row was a guy who was asking, oh, sharp questions, good questions. And that was Eric. And that's how I first met him. And that's 20 years ago, I think, Eric. And immediately after that, he came to work with me. And that since then, you, his career is meteoric. And what you, what's happened with this book of Bonhoeffer is a classic. Uh, I don't have time to do as much reading as I used to, and I do a lot of skim reading, but not this one. I went all through 500 and some pages and loved every word of it. So if you haven't read it, by all means, read it. I'm going to pose a question to you today before I start giving you a little bit of background. My part of this of this uh, uh, program today is to talk about the mess we're in. And I think it's almost self-evident to many of you how serious the ethical crisis is. It's a fault line that runs right through American life, the moral breakdown in our society. For years we've seen it coming. It keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And it's now beginning to cost us dearly as a nation. And uh, as a church, the responsibility we have is to bring moral truth into American life, into public discourse, and to get people thinking in terms of what is virtuous and what isn't. We've lost it. We've lost the roots of the Protestant work ethic, which built this nation. But let me pose a question to you, which I want you to think about in the 15, 20 minutes I have to talk. Let me pose a question which I want you to be thinking about. As a matter of fact, be thinking about it throughout the session today. It's a very, very central question, not discussed or acted on very often in our lives today. Can freedom survive without virtue flourishing? Think about it. It's not as simple a question as it sounds like. Can freedom survive if virtue doesn't flourish? And I'm going to come back and talk about that in a few minutes, and you'll see that theme all the way through all of these sessions. Now, I have a peculiar uh, habit in my life. I read the Bible every morning, but I also read the New York Times. Ugh, through, clenched, through clenched teeth, I have to. 
I do it because I write breakpoint radio broadcasts every day, and I usually get half my breakpoints out of the New York Times, out of the, some of the silly things they say. It's wonderful. I mean, for a guy like me who's writing biblical commentary on public events, uh, the, 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 the Times is indispensable. I, I, should be, I should be paying twice as much for my subscription. But one morning I picked it up, and let me tell you what I read. Extraordinary. Thomas Friedman, great writer. The world is flat. Great thinker, very liberal, secular Jew. Thomas Friedman wrote a column about why America was number one in the world by all ratings and all polls and all standards and all measurements for years and years and years, and all of a sudden it appears number 11 on the list. What happened? Everybody's talking about Newsweek's cover list of the most important and influential nations in the world, the best nations in the world. America's number 11? So Friedman writes a column in which he says, he restates the whole thesis of all of his books, which is that uh, the world is flat, everybody's got access to all the same resources and tools, and therefore we're all equal now. But here's what he says at the end about why America's number 11. The reason. This is the conclusion of his column. And he says, who's going to tell the people? China and India have been catching up to America not only via cheap labor and currencies, they are catching up with us because they now have free markets like we do, education like we do, access to capital and technology like we do, but most importantly, listen, most importantly, values like our greatest generation. They have a willingness to postpone gratification. Christians, that's a Christian virtue, deferred gratification. Paying your bills, preparing for you, pr providing for your kids in the future. A willingness to postpone gratification, invest for the future, work harder than the next guy, and hold their kids to the highest expectations. In a flat world where everyone has access to everything, values matter more than ever. And listen to this coming from a secular Jew. Right now, the Hindus and Confucians have more Protestant, Protestant ethics than we do, and as long as that is the case, we will be number 11. You need any more? That's it. And what he writes about is in the wake of the 2008 financial collapse, which the consequences of which we're all feeling, this is why the country is going bankrupt, this is why we're spending so much money, this is why the dollar is falling, this is why gold is rising, this is why we got continuing to have huge functional economic problems and consequences from 2008, from the financial collapse. And what caused that financial collapse? In Washington, you had Chris Dodd, a senator, and you had Barney Frank, a congressman, who had these great ideas. Well, everybody did. All the administrations did, as a matter of fact, over the last five years. They said, let's provide housing for all people. And so they started pouring money into the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, these semi-private government agencies, pouring money, more money than you could ever get loaned out to all the people to build houses, which created this huge bubble. And these guys did it knowing what they were doing, and they did it getting kickbacks, contributions from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac for their political campaigns. Wall Street, Wall Street exists to take whatever money's out there and liquidity and figure ways to make more money. That's what they do, and that's business. So what they did with all these billions of dollars coming in is they figured a way to, to buy those mortgages, create a secondary mortgage, bundle them all together, put good ones in with bad ones, get rating agencies which gave them phony ratings, and sell them off to 
German banks who knew, didn't know what they were buying. Wall Street also came up with something called credit default swaps, where you could get a thousand bets on one transaction. I mean, this was leveraging the bubble. And then, because all those mortgages were being bought, lenders went wild. And you can't blame them. Countrywide was, if, if you came into Countrywide and you said, I want to borrow $250,000, I'm buying my first home. They'd say, why not buy, borrow $500,000? $500, because when the time comes to have to pay off the balloon mortgage at the end, house will be worth twice as much and you can sell it. And everybody was doing this. So the lenders were corrupted. And the buyers of homes gave up the Protestant work ethic. They figured you could get something for nothing. Everybody went in debt in this country. Now what was that? That was an ethical, moral failure at every level. Government, Wall Street, the lenders, and the public which abandoned the Christian work ethic which had been what built this country. And the consequences we are feeling today and will continue to feel for years and years to come. I saw this coming, you heard a reference in here to the Harvard Business School. I saw this coming when 20 years ago now, exactly 20 years ago right now, a man by the name of John Chad, who was a friend of mine, had been in politics, been on Wall Street, had been head of the SEC. And I saw, that, I read a newspaper article in the Wall Street Journal, he'd just given $5 million to Harvard to establish a chair on ethics. And I called up John. I said, John, you're wasting your money. All these schools are committed to relativism, the idea that there is no truth, that everybody finds their own truth. And I said, Harvard can't teach that. Oh, he said, listen, they've got the greatest curriculum you've ever seen. Let me, let me send you a copy of my curriculum. So he did. He sent a copy of the curriculum that Harvard was proposing to use on teaching ethics. It was all pragmatism. Don't do something wrong because it might get you in the newspapers and that's bad for business. That's not ethics. Ethics is an absolute. Ethics is the way things ought to be. Ethics, ethics is a standard that everybody has to embrace. And this is simply saying, don't do anything that you can't get away with. And it was all politically correct stuff. It was all about not discriminating in hiring and gender sensitivities and all, all these things, environmental concerns. Nothing to do with virtue and ethics and doing what is right. So I ended up, it's a long story, and I won't, tell you, I won't bore you with all of it now, but it ended up with Harvard inviting me up to give a lecture in 1991 in Aldridge Hall with a big one of the big lecture halls with uh, everybody sitting in the round and 350 people packed in students and a lot of faculty and I had prepared for that hard and never prepared for any speech in my life because I figured I'm going to get eaten alive by the best and the brightest at Harvard Business School and I laid out the case why they couldn't teach ethics and sat there and did a pithy little prayer I figured God help me right now I'm going to need it figure that you know it's in the round there's no microphone or anything else the students are around and I figured they're going to come stampeding down I didn't get one good question they didn't know enough to challenge it they'd never had any background they didn't they didn't really get what I was talking about they couldn't it wasn't until the end one student stood up in the back of the room he said Mr. Colson what would you do if you were at Harvard Business School and you wanted to learn ethics I said I'd get on the MBTA that's the subway in Boston I'd go over to Boston College and audit a course by Dr. Joseph Spinella and Peter Kreef guy says how do you spell Spinella 
I mean, normally at Harvard, you tell them to go to Boston College, they'd have a riot on their hands. That's how desperate these guys are. And you're going to hear from Donovan Campbell, leader, who's got a tremendous, tremendous experience in life. And he went to Harvard Business School, graduated at the top of his class, and he'll tell you, they just don't teach ethics. They can't. How do you teach ethics when they say there's no such thing as truth? That's what's happened across our academy. That's what has gutted this country. Pope Benedict calls it the dictatorship of relativism. And it has caused the moral breakdown right across the board everywhere in American life. Well, that's really the genesis of this film. All of you know that I spent my life 35 years, last 35 years, going into prisons. I love it. I have a passion for it, to bring the gospel to prisoners. Absolutely love. But I discovered early on that the reason the prisons were being filled wasn't all the sociological theories about crime that we hear generally. It was the fact that studied at Harvard in 1986, established this by two great social scientists. Lack of moral training during the morally formative years. And it hit me that we are raising a generation that lacks male role models. The family has broken down. These kids aren't learning character. Where does character come from? I think you'll hear Donovan talking about this today. It comes from habits that you learn in the family first. That's the first basic structure. That's Aristotle once said that's the school, first school of human instruction. It comes from associations that you become part of where you find your identity and you find role models in other people. That's how characters form. You cannot teach character. All these courses going in public schools today about teaching character, it's a joke because you can't teach character. You learn character. You learn character by living with people who create an environment which is righteous, where people live righteously in that environment. That's how you do it. So I thought to myself, this is really a problem, and, and I had had this experience at Harvard, and then I'd spoken at schools all across the country. I ended up speaking, Donovan will be pleased with this, at the 2nd Marine Division, where I'd started out as a platoon commander at 1950s, and uh, the commanding general invited me back to give a speech on ethics, and he had 2,000 Marines in the base theater at Camp Lejeune, all sitting with their spit-shine boots and sitting at attention. And it was a great experience. That's where I got the best questions, anyway. Grizzled up old master sergeant stood up to me and he said, Mr. Colson, which is more important? Semper Fidelis, you and I are Marines. Which is more important? Loyalty or integrity? Ah! Got it. Wish I'd thought about that when I was in the Oval Office. Whoa! He really got it. Um... Marines do get it. You'll hear more from Donovan about that. We're, we're a little bit, those of us who were in the Marine Corps are a little bit proud of that. But it's true. It does build character. But the result of this, when I was realizing what was happening in the prisons, was I thought, I've got to do something about ethics. What you're seeing today rolled out, and Eric told you this is the first stop. Actually, we've had two before it out in California, where audiences went just like this out and got the films, and now they're using them out there. They've ordered them. They're using the, the, the rough products we have. The final finished product will be available for delivery in two to three weeks, and we want to see this thing go all across the country. One of my friends said, one of my friends, when, I, when, he, when he reviewed the film, when he viewed the film, said, wouldn't it be something if five million Americans started to do the right thing? And he said to me, you'd turn the country upside down. 
And he's right. Robert Duller, a sociologist in California here at Berkeley, uh, did a report maybe 20 years ago now in which he said he can show instances through history when it takes only 2% of the population to change their behavior and to pursue something well and effectively to change the whole culture. To get a cause and to make it succeed. And we have seen in the last 25 years evidence of that with the gay rights movement in America, which started as a minority of people that nobody had any paid any attention to, now is the most powerful political force in America. It can happen. I want to see, that's my goal, that's why I'm standing here today. I want to see 5 million people, 2% of the population of this country, start doing the right thing. Start practicing virtue. So what you're going to see today is a product that I've dreamed about doing now ever since that time at Harvard. And two years ago I went to the Temple and Foundation and I made a proposal to them. I, I, it was amazing because I gave them a really gold-plated proposal. I said, I want to produce a film that is, that is absolute Hollywood quality. And I want it to be a six-part teaching series. And I want to cover what it makes, what it means to live a virtuous life. And I want to do it for people to understand who aren't believers because we as believers understand this but how can we communicate it to our non-believing friends so throughout this series you will see that we're using natural law arguments and we're talking about Christian truth but we're using prudential explanations of why it's important so that people can see this makes sense and then when they start to inquire about it they'll come back and see that it's the Bible I had an experience 20 years, 25 years ago when I was invited to speak to the Texas legislature. And I uh, did so on the subject of criminal justice. And I, I uh, talked to them about why restitution is such a good answer instead of incarceration. Because it's cheaper and they pay back the victims. You wouldn't believe the number of Texas legislators in, uh, in that uh, capital that day in Austin who came up to me afterwards and said, Boy, Mr. Colson, restitution, what a great idea. Where did that come from? <laughs> I said, you get a Bible at home? Oh, you get a Bible at home. I said, you go dust it off and read Exodus. That's exactly what, what God commands us to do. And you read the story of Zacchaeus, and you'll see that's what Jesus did to pay back the victims. We don't have to lead with the Bible. We have to have, speak from the Bible to the language of the culture so that the culture understands what we're saying. And that's what we do in this series. And that's unique in this series. You won't see another Christian film that does this. But one of the virtues of this is if you start taking this and begin to use it and show it, you can, in your church, teach your church members how to speak prudentially to a non-believing crowd and win them over. We've got to learn how to win them. We're missionaries to our own culture. We're aliens in this culture because we speak a different language. So we've got to learn how to speak language they understand and show them the positive benefits. What this film series does is show the positive benefits of what it really means to live a good life. And a good life is one that is one filled with virtue. That's When, when, the, when our founders said those magnificent, wonderful words, we hold these truths to be self-evident when Jefferson wrote them. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain enable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. They were recognizing what's the fundamental ethic of Western civilization, that life has dignity, 
And they were recognizing that we were going to have an experiment in the word of liberty in this country in which people lived lives where they had the right to life and where they had the right to pursuit of happiness. But happiness defined by the founders was the Greek meaning for happiness. Virtue. We're not supposed to go out and be happy, hedonists. We're supposed to go out and live virtuous lives. And that was the definition of the Greeks of a good life. And that's exactly, if you look, go back and look at the discussions of our founders, that's what they were talking about. To live a life of virtue. So how do we get virtue back in life? Okay, this is a six-part series. Number one outlines the problem, what happened in 2008, why it all collapsed. Number two goes to the question of truth. And you'll see Martin Luther King is the source for us because the letters from a Birmingham jail are the most powerful exposition of truth being knowable and the law of beyond the law governing us not just the law that judges make from the benches or legislatures make but the law that transcends the law and it's knowable number three is the toughest of them all that is you can know what is right and do what is wrong where have we heard that in our Bibles the great apostle why is it that I want to do good and I do wrong what is it that makes me sin and he was a, he was a, he was a believer when he wrote that so the, all believers wrestle with this too what has to happen inside a person to turn them from being bent towards sin which we are by original sin and straightened out to at least be able to make the right decisions and do the right thing. And that's character. That's conscience. You'll see in this film where we talk about Newman's definition of conscience. Conscience is a stern monitor. You know, the worst thing you can say to somebody today is let your conscience be your guide. That's the most dangerous thing you can say. Because we think my conscience is whatever I feel okay about. No! Con scienta, with knowledge. It means that there's an objective reality that's plugged into your brain and trained into your mind, drilled into your head by your kids and by your experiences in life. So now you know what's right. You've got a conscience. It's not an issue of permission slips. It is the way in which you know what's right and wrong. So how do you get your conscience formed? How do you then begin to live that? How do you learn to live it in community? Donovan will give you some great examples of how that is done in the Marine Corps. And we use some great things in this film. That one session, three, is the guts of it. You can't show, you, you can't understand ethics without understanding that. Number four is life. And the life issue is a huge one. And the medicine issue is a Huge one, and Dr. Stevens is going to talk about that, and he's very, very articulate on this subject because he understands it. And you'll see Chris Hook from Mayo Clinic on the screen saying, eugenics is back. Do you know what eugenics is? Perfecting the human race by deciding who lives and who dies. And the Germans did it, and we, we were absolutely horrified, and we're doing it today in a much more genteel and subtle way. And number five is about ethics in the business community. How to live a virtuous life as you are undertaking an enterprise in which you can fulfill your creative gifts from God and make a difference in the world. And then how you are responsible to produce products and services that are in the public good. 
and how you then are responsible to your workers to enhance their dignity because you know that work has an inherent dignity. It's a gift of God, the capacity to work. So that's a great series. And the last one, the very final one, which is really, really significant, I think, is Ethics in International Affairs. And I'll just tell you this very quickly. In 1973, I was asked by President Nixon to go to the Soviet Union and negoti negotiate for the release of Soviet Jews. And I did. I spent a week over there pounding the table with Russian uh, Soviet diplomats, Vasily Kuznetsov, the hardline negotiator. And the whole reason we were trying to get the Soviet Jews out, 35,000 were trying to leave and the Soviets were blocking it, is that the, the pro-Israeli bloc in America had gone to the Congress and deny and, and blocked our shipping grain over there, which was President Nixon's deal, we would ship grain to the Soviets and the Soviets would give us the arms agreement we wanted. And that was the deal he made in 1972. It fell apart when Congress blocked it, so Nixon sent me over there. Anyway, I spent a week there quoting the Declaration of Independence to the head of the uh, foreign ministry of the Soviet Union, and he's pounding his table saying, you're interfering in our internal affairs. I said, it's not internal affairs. Anyway, long story short, we got 35,000 Jews released. The end of the film, and this comes very clear in Eric Metaxas' masterful book on Bonhoeffer, the end of it was when Bonhoeffer, writing a little book on ethics, said what brought Germany down was the loss of the traditional ethics of the German people. And what happens when you lose those ethics? Six million Jews died. One whether this is a life and death question? The whole question of whether we can promote virtue, the whole question of whether we can restore this, the sanity to a nation which is torn apart by an ethical mess, the whole idea of whether we still are a number 11 in the world and, and we're Christians, so we live in the, we're citizens of the kingdom of God, but God tells us to be the best citizens we can be and the citizens of man and to bring his truth to bear in all of life. And we've got to do that if there's any chance for us to bring this country around and to bring it back, seeking virtue instead of continuing on this moral freefall. And you and I will have the opportunity today, and I'll say a word before we close, about exactly what you can do. You and I have an opportunity to make a difference and start a grassroots movement that will sweep right across this country. God bless you. Thank you for being here.